Sales win rates have plummeted to a mere 17%, and outdated technology and tedious manual processes are to blame. Meanwhile, managers lack the visibility they need to hold their teams accountable. But imagine a world in which these crippling issues are solved automatically. Revenue.io automates the most frustrating parts of sales so reps can focus on what they do best, selling. Completely automate pre-call research, logging conversation data in your CRM, writing post-conversation recap emails, and prioritized outreach. And as reps book more meetings and close more deals, managers gain the real-time insight they need to scale what's working across their entire team. Ready to say goodbye to tedious sales processes and watch your win rate soar? Head over to Revenue.io to learn more. The difference between having a great quarter, making your number, or reporting a bad quarter often comes down to the effectiveness of your sales team's discovery calls and demos. But how do you make sure your reps are doing the right things on their calls in order to finish the quarter strong? Well, introducing Gong.io, the number one conversation intelligence platform for B2B sales teams. Gong helps you ensure your reps are doing deep discovery calls and crisp sales demos by recording, transcribing, and analyzing their calls. And Gong allows you to understand how well your playbook is being followed and analyze how well it's working so you can constantly move the needle on your win rates. Now, if you request a demo of Gong as a result of hearing this message, you'll get a free ebook copy of my award-winning book, Zero Time Selling, 10 Essential Steps to Accelerate Every Company's Sales. So go to gong.io forward slash accelerate to request your no-obligation demo and get your copy of my award-winning book, Zero Time Selling. Again, that's gong.io forward slash accelerate, G-O-N-G dot I-O forward slash accelerate. So go there now and come back and enjoy today's episode. It's time to accelerate. Hey, friends, this is Andy. Welcome to episode 520 of Accelerate, the sales podcast of record, where I hold in-depth conversations with today's leading experts in sales, marketing, and leadership six days a week. Now, if you'd like to see the show notes for this episode, go to andypaul.com forward slash 520, which you find there's a timestamp breakdown of this and all the conversations on Accelerate. So if you're listening to an episode or listening to this episode, missed a key point, want to go back, check it out. It's a great resource to do that. Go to andypaul.com forward slash 520. Now, I am really pleased to welcome a new sponsor to Accelerate. Joining us today, as you heard at the beginning of the show, is Gong.io. Gong automatically records your sales calls and demos. Calls are then transcribed, analyzed with Gong's uh, algorithms so that you can quickly understand what's working, what's not. And basically, as they like to say, you can quickly x-ray your sales team's calls and demos. Great coaching tool. So check it out at gong.io forward slash accelerate. And there you'll find out how you can earn a free PDF copy of my award-winning book, Zero Time Selling. So check it out at gong.io forward slash accelerate. Joining me on the show for the first time is Matthew Sweezy. Matthew is the, an author a keynote speaker, and principal of marketing insights at salesforce.com. I invite Matthew on the show to talk about key trends in B2B marketing and to get in some really interesting research he's done about what separates the high-performing marketers from the rest. I think you'll really enjoy this. So, Matthew, welcome to Accelerate. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, pleasure to have you here. So I have a standard question I ask most of my guests, or virtually all of my guests, I guess. I shouldn't qualify like that <laughs> up front. 
And not really a sales question, but sort of, but so it is in your mind, what's, what's the single biggest challenge facing sales professionals today? Uh, the single biggest challenge? Yeah. Uh, it's, I really think it has to do with understanding how people want to relate and how people want to be sold and what they're actually buying. Uh, I think too many of the times that, you know, we're taught to think that salespeople should be slick talking, that they should be um, super A-type personalities, that, that these are all the things that make great salespeople. And, and I don't think that's true at all. And in fact, one of the greatest salespeople that I've ever worked with, um, back when I was selling uh, for a company called Pardot, and this guy is still to this day the number one salesperson, uh, and I don't want to get into who or what company, but let's just say it's a pretty giant company. Um, and we did the personality tests, and he is so far off the scale from an A-type personality. He is so introverted, but consistently, year in, year out, he's the number one salesperson. Yep. And it has nothing to do with anything other than he understands how modern people want to buy. He understands that just all the basics, you know, he understands humans. He understands how to relate to people. He understands how to identify objections, how to overcome objections, like all the basic blocking, blocking and tackling. Yeah, I, I agree hundred percent. I, I think these outmoded stereotypes about what constitutes a good salesperson, which you still see in the vast majority of, of job postings for salespeople, you know, the extrovert hunter, you know, closer, blah, 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 things that to my mind, my mind and my way of thinking are completely irrelevant. And rarely do you ever see, you know, I need somebody who's empathetic, curious, problem solver, and so on. Um, and it's, so what do you think it's going to take to sort of shift the mindset? I mean, is it just customers pushing back and, you know, this whole idea of the customer experience, which is, you know, coming to the fore, it's people just learning the lessons the hard way and saying, oh, I guess we have the wrong people selling. That, no, I mean, we, I think we have to realize that not all cute puppies make it into the world. Uh, and I think we need to really understand that, you know, these, these businesses that are putting out those ads for those salespeople, they're not going to be around in three years. I mean, just look at the simple statistic that everyone talks about from the fortune 500 list, how one third of the fortune 500 list over the last decade has been removed and replaced, right? The old ideas of what business is, how it should operate and how it should work. They, they were created for a very specific point in time. And that point in time has passed. And, now we are living in a completely new era. And what you're going to see a lot of times is the front lines, such as the salespeople trying to do this selling, either one, that they're going to get pushed back, or two, they're going to educate themselves. And then that's going to groundswell up in an organization. That's one way we're going to see change. Um, and we've seen that change a lot in terms of that drives a lot of the adoption of new technologies and methodologies. Mm -hmm. right? Um, and then that get kind of ground swells up in the organization. The other is the organization top down. So we you also got to kind of think about this from a difference of how old is the company, right? So companies that have been around for a long time have a very structured and refined process. Um, that's going to be a lot harder to change than new companies that are starting up and saying, how should we do this correctly? Uh, also, are they new people to the environment where they're not trying to bring over old ideas? Um, and so that's how we'll see a lot of progressiveness happen because those companies with new ideas are just going to entirely demolish other companies, hence making them change. Yeah, you hope, right? I mean, unfortunately, some of the biggest offenders and some of the things we've been talking about are tech organizations, especially some in the SaaS sector and well. Yeah, no, no, I'll put a pin in that. I didn't say just because you were tech, you were progressive. I think I think that is a, a, a massive misnomer that people have. Oh, good, good, because I, I get that a lot from people. So, excellent. Love to hear that.
yeah, there's there's sort of always this assumption that hey, you know, tech companies are leading edge when it comes to sales, and in some cases yeah. they are. Definitely, there are some companies that absolutely are. But what you sell and how best, you are organized are yeah. two different things. So what you sell is just what you sell. That has no I, that has no bearing on your organizational organizational structure or processes. Um, we've seen some of the most boring companies in the most boring industries be some of the most progressive in terms of marketing and selling. Um, and, and so that there is no correlation to what you sell and your organizational structure or processes, right? Uh, that, that is a, a giant thing that I think people just assume to be the, the case because they're selling a progressive thing. Their business structure must be progressive. And those two are not, uh, causational or correlational. Love it. Perfect. Okay. Thank you. So, uh, <laughs> so I was interested in a, a report that you'd put out about high-performing B2B marketers. Um, and so you, serve, you surveyed about 2,000 organizations. So what's your definition of high-performance in marketing? All right. So, let, so let's take two steps back. So this report, um, so my job at Salesforce is I'm the, the principal of marketing insights. So what mm-hmm. I do is I help us kind of figure out, I'm kind of more or less, um, I'm kind of like a guide, like a, they bounce ideas off of me. I help kind of guide what, what our thinking and logic is. And so when we decided to do this state of marketing report back in 2000, uh, I guess what year? 2016. 16. Um, you know, what we wanted to find is, is what is the difference between high performers and underperformers? And you get into the problem of, well, how do you classify a high performer, especially when you're going to do a massive survey, right? So what we figured out was there's two ways to do it. One, we could literally go through all the thousands of people and, you know, manually look at this giant checklist. Or two, we could ask some self-selecting questions. And so we decided to ask were two self-selecting questions. So high performers were people that answered these two questions in a specific way. Question number one was, how do you compare your business and to your direct competition? Is your business beating your direct competition or being beaten by your direct competition. And obviously this was a sliding scale, right? Mm-hmm. So you could say, you know, to what degree. The second was how happy are you with your marketing outcomes? So those companies that are extremely happy with their marketing outcomes and inside of their progressive, the respective marketplaces are excelling far beyond anybody else. We identified those as the high performing businesses. Okay. So how did, Marketing outcomes, can they be viewed in isolation? That's a really good question. Um, I, so that's why we kind of had those two questions together, right? Mm-hmm. So you're, it's not just are your marketing outcomes good, Is are you happy with your marketing outcomes? And are you actually, are those things actually propelling your business to succeed? And, and to the point of your question is you can't just say because you've got good marketing, your business is, is, is succeeding. But what you can probably say is if your business is happy with their marketing outcomes and your business is succeeding, there's probably lots of other things you're doing behind the scenes that equate to those two things coming out. Mm-hmm. And so when you start looking at the results of what actually makes a high performer, when we start getting into these questions, what we then see are those other correlating factors. And that's kind of the, 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 the goal that we came out with in this study. And the number one factor is executive buy-in, right? So what we found is all those companies that are happy with their marketing outcomes and are beating all of their direct competition. And by the way, it's not that just they're, they're beating their direct competition. These high performers 
are outperforming their direct competition by a factor of 96x, not 96%, 96 Mm -hmm. times, Mm -hmm. right? So that's kind of the difference between high and low. And what we found was executive buy-in is the number one difference, which says that it's not what you market, it's your organizational structure. Does your executive team buy into this new idea of how you market and sell your product and your business? And do they have a new idea on even what that product should be? Um, And from there, then that dictates budget, that dictates the tactics that they're willing to allow you to do, and so on and so forth. And at the end, that equates to not only a high-performing marketing organization, but a very successful modern organization. Yeah, and this idea of executive buy-in, especially when you're looking at this topic, which is you know, one of the topic du jour, which is you know, marketing and sales alignment, executive buy-in is, is the number one thing to be able to make that happen, right? If we're looking at, okay, how do we, which I want to get into eventually, how do we correlate the marketing outcomes to sales outcomes? But uh, you know, having them work together in the way they need to work, whether it's an account-based strategy or whatever, is at least my interviews with a number of people on the show about this particular topic is that yeah, the organizations that get it are the ones that have, as you said, the executive buy-in. All right, now let's let, let's put a pin in that. So I want to make a caveat statement real quick and, and say it's not that simple, right? Just because your organization believes they need marketing or more marketing or even a new idea of marketing does not mean you have executive buy-in, right? So what sure. I find executive buy-in is, is the executives buy into a completely new idea that must exist, meaning they understand that they must tackle organizational change to meet a new marketplace rather than leaving all organizational structures in place and just having a new skin on the outside. Oh, yeah. No, no. What I was talking about was the ones that have seen that give you know, examples of it happening successfully are that, you know, they're held accountable by the CEO yeah. for, for, you know, it's not just, you know, the buy-in is, yeah, go do that. And I'm in charge of it. It's, no, I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm measuring you on this. Yeah, I'm holding you accountable that you're making this happen. Yeah. And, and I'm going to provide the fund, and I'm going to provide the funds, blocks, right. Right. which which may be your way to roadblocks um, the ability to and the 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 mobility and leverage to then execute on on how you see fit. So one of the other things that you brought up about a uh, couple of factors, one that I took away from sort of the difference between high performer and underperformer, which yeah may be a little obvious, but I I don't think is always the case. Is one is seems like the high performing organizations just operate with a higher sense of of optimism and confidence. Expand on what you mean. Well, in terms of you know desire to be able to invest more in the technology and tools and to uh, you know move forward more aggressively, perhaps than their competitors. It it seemed like uh, it seemed yeah. like that seemed you know as I was reading it, it seemed like okay, yeah, that's what set this this sort of group apart. And I don't think it's just because they were successful. I think it's I sort of took away from that sense that that's part of what got them to where they were. Yeah. All right. So so let's chat about this real quick. So. What we're specifically referring to is if anyone's actually looking at the report, we're talking about the the part where the difference in terms of tools and technology sets used between high performers and underperformers. Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah. And and so what I found is on average, a high performer in the B2B space, and I don't have the report in front of me, but I believe it's 12. I believe the average number of tools that they use to create a what we would call a cohesive and holistic view of the customer is 12, right? A cohesive customer journey. Mm-hmm. Underperformers use anywhere from like one to five. And so you see the massive difference in the adoption of technology. Um, and, and I think that really speaks to two things. One, I think it speaks to, we have to realize in this day and age what the consumer expects. 
And it's impossible to fulfill on that consumer expectation if you don't have a base level of technology that allows you to do something so simple as know who that individual is and how you are contextual to them at any point in time. And I think that just is a no-brainer. Um, but that requires a lot of technology to do so. And here's where we run into that problem. So you see so many businesses following this path. And if your business has been around any length of time, this is a problem you faced, right? The day that the website came out, you go to your boss, you say, hey boss, we need a website. And they're like, great. And you're like, yeah, I need money for that. And they're like, well, I don't know. We've, we've had the same budget forever and you're asking for more money. Do you really need that? And you're like, yes, I really need this. So then they give you money for a website, right? And that's 1995. Mm-hmm. And then we come back and we're like, hey, boss, uh, we got this website. But now what we need is we need money for SEO to get that website to be seen by people. And they're like, well, you just asked for money for a website. And that was already outside the original budget. Now you're asking for more money. I don't even know if I've seen value off that website yet. You know, so it starts to these problems and then it, it, it perpetuates. Right. Then you say, well, now we're driving people to the website. Now I need to capture emails. I need an email tool. Well, there's another significant outlay for budget that didn't exist before. Well, then we need a CMS. Well, then we need a marketing automation tool. Well, then we need a CRM. And, and you start compounding all of these things. Um, and it gets very hard when you keep having to go back to your boss every, you know, it seems like almost every year asking for a completely new set of what ends up being pretty significant outlay. Um, and, and that's a problem that a lot of organizations have is, especially if they're historical or been around for any length of time, is understanding that the cost of marketing nowadays and how that budget is being spent is very different than how it used to be spent. Um, and I think this goes back to, to kind of tie this into the sales um, angle that, that a lot of the listeners are probably coming from. It's think about this you know, basic statistic. If you look at marketing and sales as one group of people and you divide this into a percentage of the task, if we go back 10 or 15 years and we say sales and marketing as a group. We're talking about customer acquisition. The right, task. customer acquisition. Right. right. What percentage does each one of these two people own of the customer acquisition model? Well, marketing would own about 10%. They're the ones that are going to generate the pretty pictures, send out the flyers, and manage the events. And then sales is going to do everything else from identifying which customers they need to work with to um, you know, moving them, identifying objections, starting with them at the very early stages and moving them through. As we've seen through you know, research from the Consumer Executive Board, from Gartner, by 2020, what we expect is that to be completely shift. So you know, 10, 15 years ago, it was a 10-90 split. 10% was marketing, 90% was sales on customer acquisition. Now what we see is it's expected to be an 80-20, where 80% of the customer acquisition is supposed to be in the hands of marketing, and 20% is going to be in the hands of the salesperson. That has to specifically do with how customers are now finding information and this whole boom and boon of content that we're producing. Right? So the statistic from Gartner is by 2020, 80% of the customer acquisition or 80% of the customer sale will happen without a salesperson's involvement, meaning that the salesperson will only be involved for the final 20% of that purchase, um, which really kind of flips the entire model on its head. <laughs> well, let me ask a question. So first of all, do you think that's true? Do you, I mean, do you think, do you have any reason to doubt, I guess, their, their projections? Because, you know, there's a lot of, let's take this whole, this whole issue about, you know, how far has the customer progressed through their sales cycle buying process before they engage with sales for the first time? You know, you can raise that question in, you know, certain rooms of people and, and fistfights will break out, right? Where yeah. people are saying that, yeah, that's right. And other people saying, 
forget it. You know, it's all still about cold calling and how we, you know, customer, yeah, they may have looked at your website, but, you know, the buying process doesn't start till they talk to a salesperson. So I guess, you know, sort of in that context is, is you know, do we think, do we think this is the case? I love the question. You're like, do you think that's true? Because <laughs> um, well, first off, no one's ever asked me that. Uh, everyone's just like, oh yeah, that they're, they're a massive, important people. This is what they say. We, we must understand it's the truth. Well, yeah, I can go back and I, look at their predictions and I'm sure I could catalog, you know, fill the library of Congress with ones that were wrong. Right. Yeah. Just like yeah, every prediction. So, right. Um, so here, here's what I believe. I believe what we need to realize is first off the consumer first, right? We need to remove ourselves from this conversation and say, how does the consumer want to buy? What, what is the modern consumer decision-making process? And this is something I spend a lot of time and a lot of research on. Right. And by consumer, in this case, we're talking about B2B customers. Right. B2B customers. Right. And the modern consumer buying process is very different now. And so there is a large shift from, you know, how they get information and where they get information and how that information leads them down different paths. Right. right? So we can't downplay the, the role of content in their buying process. Absolutely. Now, do I believe that a salesperson's job will ever be extinct? And the answer is no. And, and I think, I don't remember if that was Gardner or Forrester who, you know, Forrester. stated a year to, yeah, Forrester that, you know, the, the B2B salesperson's job will be extinct. Yeah, you're all going it's, away, it's, right. It's not, right? Yeah. No, no person will ever make a decision with that amount of risk involved, right? A B2B decision has a massive amount of risk involved. Right, without talking to a person. Exactly right, right. That, that won't happen. Um, but I, I do honestly think that, the role of sales is shifting. It has to shift because of what the consumer expects, right? So rather than, you know, you have to also say there's nothing ever dies, right? In the marketing world, coming from a marketing background, you know, we're in a digital world, but direct mail still works. Cold sure. calling can still work, right? It's not maybe the most effective, but is it dead? Eh, you know, there, there's, it can still work. And in certain industries, certain scenarios, whatever your go-to-market strategy is, there's always going to be pieces and parts of all kinds of things. But with that being said is the consumers are still going to make decisions differently. Yes, you may cold call on them to introduce them to an idea, to a company, to a piece of content, to whatever. But then the entire then decision-making process they're, they're still going to follow is going to kick in. You make a cold call and that person says, hey, I've never heard of this company before. And then they go online and they start finding all these horrible reviews. They see a website that looks like it's built in 1995 you're dead in the water. It doesn't matter what your message was. Yes, the cold call ate, uh, you know, got you to break through, but that holistic and consistent experience that they expect and demand wasn't there, right? So I think the two have to work in combination with each other, where it's no longer marketing and sales. What we must understand is it's, it's about the experience in total, mm -hmm. right? If that experience isn't consistent and holistic from all aspects. It doesn't matter. But if it is, then you can have lots of different touch points and it doesn't matter where that person starts as long as we have the ability to know where they are and they're finding what they need within that environment that we're creating. Right. And it may not even, even if it is the 80-20 as, as Gartner may have projected or CEB projected, is that, that the number of touch points you have as a salesperson may not change. I mean, you're still ah. going to do discovery. Right, you're still oh, gonna, you're still gonna you're still gonna have a qualification requirement. I mean, those things yeah. still exist, but what the customer is armed with coming to that point in time, yeah, is gonna be I I believe it's just gonna continue to be improved or enhanced over what they're able to come with today. And so necessarily, the questions you ask will change. The way you qualify, how you qualify, is gonna be different. But it's not like suddenly 
you know, as a salesperson, a customer's going to call up and say, okay, I'm ready to buy. Come, you know, come sign completely, the order. <laughs> completely, completely correct. Uh, yeah. So, so here's, let, let me throw a, a, an idea for you. So I don't, I don't, I don't agree that it's just going to be a complete split between 80 and 20. And I, I don't believe that a lot of the salespeople will go away. I believe their roles will shift and change. Mm-hmm. Um, so my, my hypothesis and theory that I'm writing up in my new book that's being published by Harvard Business coming out in the spring of next year has this concept of the new middle, which essentially says there's still going to be your traditional marketing. There's still going to be your traditional sales. But in between those is actually going to be the largest majority of our interactions with our customers. And those are going to have, have to come from mediated methods, such as uh, mediated, meaning there's a, a medium in between the interaction that may be email, social, um, telephone, whatever it may be. But those mediated interactions are not going to be sales calls. They're not going to, they're going to be more so of a guided selling experience or relationship building or audience building, however you want to classify that. Um, and if you look at the work that Aaron Ross has done on the SDR role and those different types of things, it's all kind of flowing into the same idea, right? You're going to have this interim role whose jobs do some of these basic qualifications. They're going to be able to have to do that objection identification, that nurturing via social selling, uh, those different aspects. And whether that same person is the same person that closes the deal or not is going to be an individual organization's um, you know, operational process. Um, but I think we're going to see the entrance of a new role. So a lot of these things that sales has traditionally done are still going to have to be done. They're just going to be done in a new way. Rather than the salesperson handling it all themselves, there's going to be an interim process of people like you know the SDRs, the BDRs, um, those things that already exist in a lot of organizations. But they're going to have to use new tools and methodologies. Um, as well, I think you see, you know, Coca Sexton talking a lot about social selling and those different aspects kind of all flow into this th- new thing. But I think it's going to be a new middle and it's going to require that person to have a solid understanding of the modern mediums um, and how to use them and how to connect with them, uh, as, a, as well as having a very strong understanding of sales, uh, identifying objections, rapport building, all those core sales fundamentals. Um, they're not going to go away. They're just going to shift into a new role. Interesting. Um, yeah, I, I agree with some of that. <laughs> I mean, I think that, that it's plausible. There's, a, there's certainly a, a new role. Um, yeah, I don't think it's necessarily an evolution of the SDR function per se. I, I think it could be something completely different. But I do agree that the, the focus has to be on the relationship building. And because that's a part that, quite frankly, SDRs are not really trained to do and are not expected to do. No, and, and I completely agree with you that it's not SDR role. I was just kind of using that, you know, we're moving in that direction. Well, no, but it's, it is one of the, the fallacies, I think, in the models that exist today that contributes to, you know, really piss poor close rates, <laughs> to excuse my French, in the SaaS business is that, you know, that relationship aspect is really missing. You know, the connection, the trust, the credibility, um, yeah, it's and, and that's as you sort of talk about this in a new new environment. Is have you read the book Absolute Value by Simonson and Rosen? I have you not. Know, you might want to look at it. Where the guys out of Stanford, you know, talk about that. Yeah, one of the, the real impacts of all this access. He's talking about decision making in an age of nearly perfect information. That's the subtitle. But ah. it but it's it's what they're saying is look, yeah, we're gonna get to a point where increasingly, certainly it's happening on the consumer side, but it's gonna happen in the B2B world as well, is that yeah, given all this information, the content that's out there is that 
buyers will be able to more nearly experience, you know, what the, you know, the experience utility or experience value of a product is going to be before they buy it. And so if you think that's the case, then yeah. So when a salesperson gets engaged in that process and the customer has this much better sense of what it's going to be like to actually utilize a product and the value they're going to extract from it, your conversations look very different going forward. Yeah. On this, I'll completely agree. Do you read much Joe Pine or follow much Joe Pine? I've read a little, but I haven't read much. No. So he, he's the guy that wrote Experience Economy back in the day. Uh, Infinite I, Possibilities. Yeah, I, actually, I have the book, but I. But. Yeah. Uh, so good buddy of mine. So we talk about the same topic all the time. Uh, in fact, what his his big book Experience Economy talks about is the the moving to a new economic uh, value, a high mm-hmm. highest economic value, and, and what you're talking about is the exact same thing, right? If the economic value is no longer the product, it's it's the experience that we create that mm-hmm. moves our businesses to creating experiences, hence moves our marketing and sales to we need to be the creators and the sustainers of that experience, not the pushers of product. Exactly. Um, and, and so it totally changes what we do and our functions and everything. And I'm so glad we're having this conversation because it so many people just don't get this. And I'm hoping that I'm wrong, that a lot of people get this and I just don't know who they are. <laughs> well, I think that that people are learning, right? It's not that people aren't going to get it. It's it's just yeah, who's thinking about it? Yeah, you know, I, I've done five hundred episodes of this, and you know, we don't do it to pitch products. We do it to explore what's happening in sales. So yeah, we're thinking about this a lot. Um, and it's yeah, the it is going to be different, but there's still, as you said, still going to be this significant role for sales. And it's not going to be as doom and gloom as Forrester said. As, as, but your skill set, your behaviors, your, your habits as a seller are going to have to change. Yep. And Completely. it's going to have to be more, as I like to say, the, the future of selling, and this is something that people sometimes push back against. I said the future of selling is actually about becoming more human, not less. Oh my God, it's completely true. Who pushes back against that? Oh, people do all the time because, hey, we got AI, we got technology, we're automating all these functions, blah, 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 blah. It's like, yeah. No, no, no. You, uh, technology can only help you make better decisions. It, it can't make you be more human. I well, mean, that's, that's what we have to be is be human to human. One of my favorites is like um, Tim Washer. I don't know if you know Tim Washer. He's, uh, he works on marketing for Cisco. Um, he was on the, the, was it T-Mobile commercial with Catherine Zeta-Jones where there's the husband on the couch and Catherine Zeta-Jones is sitting there and his wife's next to him and he's completely talking to Catherine Zeta-Jones as if he doesn't have a wife um, <laughs> and his wife's sitting next to him. And it's like the most awkward conversation. He, he's a stand-up comedian and an yeah. improv comedian. And my favorite quote from him, he talks all about humor in business, especially B2B. Uh, and he goes, you know, 95% of the people that read your blog are people. Uh, and we forget that people all enjoy laughing and all find humor funny. So, you know, it's okay to be humorous because that's a human emotion and we should relate to that human emotion because we are humans. Yeah. Well, and we think about, uh, it's just, again, before talking to you, talking to, uh, Jocko Vanderkoy about, you know, how we should be looking at instead of having these sort of sales oriented stages in a in a, a buying process or a sales process is they're really almost emotion based, right? Experience based uh, phases. You know, somebody has a a problem, you know, that they're frustrated and then they've got this aha moment that they understand there's a solution. And then there's like, wow, there's something that can actually solve this problem for me. I mean, that if we focus more on that on the human side, then we talk about the connections we make to make yeah. those emotions happen. We're much more successful. 
Yeah, and if you follow that right back into uh, to bring Pine back into this, the the updated uh, version of the experience economy talks about the highest economic value of transformations, and the the product of transformation is guiding, right? So exactly what you're talking about is is guiding people to the next question that they need to ask, right? So it's like, all right, here's a problem they're having now. Let's help them solve that problem. And then once we help them solve that problem, let's help them get to the next question they need to ask, right? And I think that's totally the experience um, because solving problems have lots of steps in them. You know, no one, no one wakes up and says, oh, I want to go buy this piece of software. They start out with a question and then that leads them to another question and then it leads them to another question. And then eventually it leads them to some type of action. Um, and I think if we can understand that the sales role is to first off identify and connect with that person as a human, have them trust you as your opinions and then help. And then you help guide them along this journey, creating this experience of, you know, a teacher for them. Um, you know, see what I did there. I brought it back to that's very good. Very good. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and then I, I think that's what the modern definition of sales looks like. And, and the execution of that is very different. Like the old school, fast talker, you have a gift for gab. Um, you, you know, that, that person probably still exists and that person probably still sells stuff. Well, I think they do, but I think, and I think just to sort of rack to what you're just talking about, that, that customer experience is, and I think one of the things that I was just racking to the word customer experience and problems is too often we, we sort of conflate the idea of problems with pain points. And if I had a, a wish, it was a salesperson would never, ever ask about a customer's pain points. Because, you know, when people are out, especially in the B2B world, and look at making an investment, uh, they're looking to achieve something. You know, I'm not trying to put a Band-Aid on something. I'm trying to move from where I am today to where I need to be tomorrow. And so this whole idea of an experience plays into supporting the customer on that story arc where they want to be. And so... You know, salespeople, you really need to sort of reconceptualize what it is you're trying to help the customer achieve. Yeah, I like that experience arc um, comment. Have you done any work on that or written on that, the experience arc of, of selling? Because I think that's a pretty cool topic of rather than helping people understand that, you know, let's, let's get you to buy this. It's like, well, where are you on your journey of what you want to accomplish? And I think that's pretty cool. Yeah. I like how you raise it oh thank you that's it's gonna be in my new book <laughs> oh well, there you go we're, we're teasing up our books there you we're go we're teeing up our books yeah but uh, hey maybe it's something we could write about together so well matthew i unfortunately we've run out of time but it's been an absolute pleasure to have you on the show and I look forward to having you back on again so um tell people how they can learn more about you and connect with you yeah the the best place is twitter um and i made this giant mistake of using the first letter of my first name and my last name to be my twitter handle and so it's uh m sweezy but if you read it real quickly it's uh miss wheezy <laughs> so i'm uh, pretty easy to find on the twitters uh, and then SlideShare. i do a lot of work uh and uh that's, that's kind of the two best places to find me all right excellent well good well thanks again for being on the show look forward to talking to you again soon and friends thank you for spending this time with me today uh, make sure you come back and join us again tomorrow for another great episode of Accelerate. Until then, if you get a chance, take a minute, go to iTunes, wherever you listen to the show, subscribe if you haven't done so already, leave a review. We want to hear what we can do to make this an even more valuable experience for you. So thanks again for joining me. Until next time, this is Andy Paul. Good selling, everyone.
Hey, sales strategists! At Revenue.io, we're not just imagining the future of sales, we're building it. We offer the world's most complete platform for revenue teams, and we're featured in the most recent Forrester Waves for both sales engagement and conversation intelligence. With Revenue.io, you can slash call prep time to seconds, guide your reps in real time to have more successful conversations, and after calls, we generate ready-to-send recap emails so sellers can keep deals soaring toward the finish line at light speed. See the future of sales now at Revenue.io.